The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine featuring topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Meet talking book narrator Laura Ginarelli. Welcome to ACB Reports for July 2019. One of the most popular events during the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind is the presentation by a talking book narrator. In 2018, that narrator was Laura Ginarelli from the recording studio of the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped in Washington, D.C. Her presentation was entitled, Talking for a Living, Growing Up as an Audiobook Narrator. Thank you so much. You guys are going to make me cry. I spend my working life in a soundproof room, reading into a microphone, through the glass, to one person who has a set of headphones on and another copy of the book and keeps me honest. You said these instead of those, or are you sure you looked up that word and know how to pronounce it, or you skipped a sentence and... There's a noise I heard from the lamp and all that good stuff. So it's, in a sense, very solitary work. And it is my distinct honor today to be here with so many of you who are the patrons of the Talking Books program of the National Library Service for the Blind. I know that I speak for all of my fellow narrators when I say that we really love the work that we do and that we find it sort of um, amazing that we actually get paid to do work that we love so much and that we know is appreciated by the consumers out there who are you. I literally grew up as a narrator I've been doing this work since 1979, when I was 22 years old. So, so you do the math. <laughs> this morning I thought I would sort of personalize things a bit and tell you all a little bit about how I became a narrator. This is only my story, but I know that every one of my fellow narrators has their own journey that brought them to talking books, but this is mine. When I was in high school, my parents felt that it was my job to go to school and get good grades. So I did not have an after-school job like some of my friends. I just went to school, did my homework, went out to play, that sort of thing. Um, after high school, I went to Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and got a double major in drama and French, neither of which is really going to lead to a, a very lucrative career. <laughs> My first job out of college was at Olney Theater, which is now Maryland's summer theater, Maryland State Theater. Yes, yay, Maryland! Um, but 
having graduated from Catholic U, I was, oddly enough, not asked to star in a play on Broadway immediately. And so I took the first job that was offered me, which was working in the box office at Olney. And I had the great good fortune there to encounter someone who had been a grad student when I was an undergrad at Catholic U, and he was starring in Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And he came to the box office one day to arrange tickets for, I don't know, his mother, his grandmother, somebody. And he said, you know, Laura, you have a very nice voice. You should work where I worked while I was in grad school if you're going to stay in the area. I said, well, where's that? And he said, well, the, the National Library Service for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, it's in D.C. It's right near Catholic U. And he said, I would work there. He said, you know, I would work there a part-time schedule. It's very flexible. It's great for an actor. So long story short, I auditioned. And about, I guess about a year later, the government moving at a somewhat glacial pace, (laughs) I was actually hired and began working at NLS. I would like to back up, however, and tell you a little bit about me and growing up and what gave me Without realizing it, I was uh, uh, assembling the tools that allowed me to become what I hope is a good narrator. I'm an Air Force brat. I was born, a proud Air Force brat, I was born at Bowling Air Force Base in October of 1956 in a Quonset hut, which was the maternity ward annex at the time. By heritage, I am Italian-American. Both sets of grandparents emigrated from Italy near the beginning of the 20th century. They went to Barry, Vermont, yay, Vermont, because the Rock of Ages granite quarries were there. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a vein of, of granite that runs miles deep, and we will never finish quarrying that. My mother was born in November of 1919, and my dad in January of 1920, and I always thought when I was a kid it was so romantic, they were born across the street from one another. And they played together as children. But in 1927, Barry, Vermont had a big flood, the the great flood of 1927. And the stone sheds where my grandfathers both worked, working on the granite, were flooded and closed for an indefinite period of time. So needing to make a living, my mother's family moved to New York City and my father's family moved to Connecticut. My paternal grandfather started a granite um, monument business, and my grandfather on my mother's side worked down on the docks, cutting the big slabs of marble that would come over from Carrara, Italy. My parents got back together again years later when my father was already in the Air Force and my mom was working as a secretary in New York City. They married in 1955 on July 2nd. Why do I tell you about my parents and my grandparents? Well, part of what makes me a storyteller and gives me good diction are my grandmothers. My father's mother actually taught herself to read and write English by reading the newspaper. She was pretty smart, and she did the books for my grandfather's business. But as she got older, So when I was a girl, she became increasingly hard of hearing. So if I wanted Nona Mary to understand what the heck I was saying, I had to speak very clearly and distinctly, and I had to speak up. So 
in all my years, both behind the mic and as an actor on stage, no one has ever had to tell me to speak louder. <laughs> never. My other grandmother really never learned to speak English, even though she became an American citizen and lived here for, I don't know, 65 or 70 years. But she never really learned English. So when I was a child, she would live with us three or four months out of the year, and it was my job to translate what was on television. To, oh yes, oh yes, it was my job to explain that, you know, on what's happening on Bonanza or on Lawrence Welk. Oh, Lawrence Welk. Yes, oh yeah, oh, we always watched Lawrence Welk. Every week. But, you know, I would have to explain when we were watching Bonanza, allora, little Joe è innamorata di quella ragazza, ma a lei piace Hoss di più. Which is, little Joe is in love with that girl, but she likes Hoss better. So I had to learn how to distill the plot points and how to explain things clearly and cleanly so that she would understand what was going on and I would still be able to watch the show that I loved because I was in love with little Joe. <laughs> the other thing that sort of fed into my becoming an actor was that when I was very, very small, my mother used to play let's pretend with us in the kitchen with the pots and pans. And, you know, I distinctly remember getting a group of my little friends together out, outside and like putting on our own production of Babes in Toyland, which I expect I had just seen at the movie theater on the base. But without realizing it, my parents were preparing me to be a performing artist. I did my first play in the third grade. I was the third good fairy in Sleeping Beauty. It was also my introduction to the tragedy of being an actor, which is that I was certain when they had auditions that I was going to play Sleeping Beauty. But I wasn't. I wasn't even the first good fairy or the second good fairy. I was the third good fairy, and I had one line. And then I got the mumps and missed the performance altogether. Oh. <laughs> Fast-forwarding, I had a wonderful drama teacher in high school, Mrs. Sugarman, who instilled in me the radical concept that I could actually make a living performing. My mother, who was wonderful, wonderful and delightful and, and unfortunately died when I was 19, but she was a, a little more on the conservative you know, always have something to fall back on side. And she wanted to meet me to be a secretary or a teacher so that I would always be able to make a living and was a little scandalized when I wanted to go to Catholic U and be a drama major. <laughs> um, but, but both she and my dad stood behind me. And I was able, with the support of that teacher, to sort of imagine a life for myself that was not behind a typewriter. I've always loved reading, always, always. So when that friend in the box office at Only Theatre said you should audition to work narrating books, I was fascinated and intrigued. Nowadays, and for at least the last 15 years or so, I help train narrators at the National Library Service. So, you know, when we get 
some newbie in who's just been hired. I usually spend some time working with them. And I always say that rule one for doing the work that we do is that you have to love to read. The work we do is hard. It, there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle that go into making a talking book and making it sound relaxed and easy and clear and clean and all those other good things with correct pronunciations and so forth. And it's hard. You really have to love to read if you're going to stick with it. I've seen many people come and go in my 39 years at the National Library Service, and the ones who don't stay, nine times out of ten, it's because they realize, wow, this is hard. And I, I'm not all that wild about books. So, yeah, I think I'll go, like, wait tables or something. It's easier money. Um, we record at NLS as a team. There's a narrator behind the microphone, which is the, you know, the voice that you hear when you get a book from your library. But there's also the unsung heroes, the monitor, which is a job that I also do, which is the engineer, the person who nowadays sits at the computer. Used to be when I started, it was a reel-to-reel -reel telex tape recorder. But yeah, we remember those, right? Yeah, there was no undo button on the telex tape recorder. If you made a mistake, you were sunk. But the monitor not only stops me from mispronunciations or suggests that, you know, the general in chapter three had a German accent and now he doesn't, so maybe we should fix that. Um, but they also make sure all the levels are correct and that there's no extraneous noises or the lamp isn't making a buzzing sound that will cause QA to lose their minds and reject the book and go, oh my God, there's a horrible noise. And then there is the reviewer who, when the narrator monitor have finished with the recording session, the reviewer listens to the whole book and marks down all the mistakes that we made. And not just things like, you know, you said negligee instead of kangaroo. Um, I owe that one to Ray Hagen, for those of you who have ever listened to a Ray Hagen book. That was his favorite phrase for a mistake. For what, what, are you, what am I supposed to write down when I'm reviewing? Well, if I said negligee instead of kangaroo, write that down. Um, but also stylistic things, like the he said angrily suggests that maybe the character is angry. Would you like to listen to this and perhaps make it um, a little more angry? And those are the kinds of things that when they come back to us in the booth to you know, do the fixes, we don't necessarily do every correction. We might get that correction that says, you know, he said angrily, shouldn't that be more angry? And go, yeah, no, I think it's fine the way it is. Then, in our studio, it gets yet another review, a 30% review, where another reviewer listens to parts of it and then listens to all the corrections to make sure the levels are right. Then we do more corrections. So only then does it go to QA. So our books are about as faithful to the print text as they can possibly be, so that the product that you get when you check out a Library of Congress recording are about as high as anywhere, and I would put them up against the commercial product any day.
I was trained by the great Bill West and Ray Hagen, who taught me lots of stuff. Yeah, the great Ray, Ray is a wonderful, wonderful narrator, retired now. And Bill West was an amazing engineer at NLS, and he was also a patron of the program. He was blind, and he would come down to the studio and talk with us, and from the time I was, I mean, I was only 22 when I started, so they were lessons instilled early. The work that we do really is translation. We are translating material from the printed page into an audio format to give you, the listener, an experience as close as possible to the print text. So when there is blank space on the page, that tells me I have to pause because the sighted reader sees that blank space and knows that there's a change of time or place or we're changing the subject. But, you know, after that blank space is a new part of the story, and it requires a pause. But the way Bill phrased it, that we were translating, has always stuck with me. People often ask me how the books get assigned. How do I get the books that I read? I think it's different in all of the different contract studios, but in my studio at NLS, our studio director, Celeste Lawson, usually offers a narrator two or three choices to pick from, maybe a novel or two or a nonfiction. And if you've spent like the last two months reading a very challenging nonfiction book where they go to five different countries and there's all kinds of technical language, she might offer you a thriller or a Harlequin romance sort of as a, as a change of pace, as a little reward for all the work that you did. Narrators are responsible for doing our own research. So I always say, in fact, we used to have a sign in the studio before our recent renovation that said, pronunciation is to us what spelling is to a print editor. So we, we really make a huge effort to pronounce things correctly. We have shelves and shelves of reference books that we take advantage of. And of course, also the internet has like changed everything. I just recently read a nonfiction book and I, I sent the author a Facebook message asking her how she pronounces her name and amazingly she got back to me. So, you know, Facebook, YouTube, YouTube is amazing because you go on YouTube and you know, you type in the author's name and say interview and then you find them on Jay Leno or on some little uh, radio station interview and Hopefully, the interviewer says, and welcome, Laura Giannarelli, so that then I know how they say their name. Sometimes you have to listen through a lot of interview in order to maybe hear the name. But all those um, tools online have helped us be able to find the correct pronunciations. You also have to be a little leery because there are websites like Forvo, which are places kind of like Wikipedia where... Any old Joe can, like, get online and say, yes, it said Laura Guyanarelli. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's not right. But you, you sort of learn to know when it's either a robot voice or when it's clearly like someone with an egregious non-Spanish accent pronouncing a Spanish word. It's like, okay, I know, that's not right. 
but it's there online. You have, to, you have to pick and choose. You have to be discerning. The technology, speaking of the robot voice, we are getting to a place where text-to-speech has become and is becoming increasingly sophisticated. And they're actually doing tests now at NLS about the possibility of having Siri, so to speak, narrate whole books. No. Well, thank you. Um, the, the final little part of my, my talk here is a, uh, uh, I can't think of the right word, but is, is in favor of the live narrator. <laughs> when I was hired to do this work, about 10 years in, I started going to different states to talk to volunteer narrators around the country and sort of give them tips on how to do this work, how to become better narrators. And I always say that a talking book is really just a fancy electronic way for me to read you a story. That human connection is very important. Now, I will say that there is a place for text-to-speech. One of our wonderful narrators who just actually, uh, I helped work on this project, um, the library studio, the National Library Service Studio, just did a huge project creating the talking book of John Lewis's graphic novel, March. I wrote the script, you know, looking at the pictures and saying, okay, in the next frame, John is feeding the chickens in the yard of his parents' house. And he says, and it took me weeks and weeks to write the script because it's a three-volume graphic novel. Chuck Young and Julian Thompson did the recording, Chuck narrating and Julian engineering the recording. And Michael Rosado, who is also a wonderful narrator, um, did the review and marked all the mistakes and also marked places where I had perhaps misinterpreted the picture, like that's really supposed to be um, Ralph Abernathy and not John Lewis that he's talking to, um, or that's Martin Luther King and not Malcolm X, and you know made those kind of very minute corrections. And that, you know, that's a special project where the the human factor is so important. But Chuck also, several years ago, narrated a really wonderful book about the Negro Leagues of Baseball. It was a great book. If, you, if you're interested in baseball, and particularly in the Negro Leagues, it was a wonderful, exhaustive um, study of that. But at the back were about 50 pages of that which baseball fans love and I do not, all the statistics, everybody's batting average, all the RBIs, and Chuck had to read every statistic. We read every chart, and I would happily see that to Siri. Because, because certainly the patrons of the Talking Books program want access to the same stats that their sighted baseball fan friends have, but it was a bear to read every word of it. It took us like two weeks of work, and that I would happily give to the robot voice. But the love scenes in Dr. Zhivago? Yeah, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs? Yeah, not so much. I would like to share one funny research story 
And then one story to complete my point about the human connection of the work that we do. The funny story is one of my husband's favorites, and he's here. Hi, sweetie. We actually met in the recording studio. So I was working in Bethesda at Potomac Talking Books, and um, my husband was too. It wasn't my husband at the time, and, and we met and had our first date while we were both working there. So, so the National Library Service brought me love, too. Um, the, his, his favorite funny story is one that I learned in Indiana, I think, when I was working with volunteer narrators, and we were talking about goofy mispronunciations, and they shared with me that, you know, as volunteers, they often work in the evening after work, and the narrator and the monitor are alone in the studio, and they were reading this novel, which was British, and, you know, a period piece, sort of Charles Dickens-ish. And they came across this phrase and had no idea what it was supposed to be. G-O-D-E-L-P-U-S. Godlepus. Uh, yes, yes, good old Godlepus. And that's what they guessed. They looked everywhere, they couldn't find it, and so in the recording they said Godlepus. And yes, and the reviewer... Uh, gently informed them that, well, it was supposed to be, you know, sort of in the British accent, and it was meant to be, God help us. <laughs> and the, the heartwarming close to my little talk is, some years ago, probably about 15, 18 years ago, I went to speak to the Friends of the Alexandria Library, and the gentleman who ran that organization at the time was blind, and he and his wife picked me up at Metro, and as we drove to the venue, he was telling me how much talking books meant to him. And he said something I never forgot. He had been blind from birth, and he said, when I was a kid, Alexander Scorby was my best friend. Because I spent, yes, he was an amazing narrator. Let's hear it for Alexander Scorby. He said, I spent more time alone in my room with Alexander Scorby reading books to me than I did with my friends outside. And I think that's something that Siri will never be able to talk. Thank you. That was Laura Ginarelli, a talking book narrator for the National Library Service in Washington, D.C. She was recorded in St. Louis on July 4, 2018. The 58th Annual Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind will be held from July 5th through 12th in Rochester, New York. Listen for highlights from this year's conference on upcoming editions of ACB Reports. You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.